Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Sir. I've had a big introduction this morning, haven't I? A couple of times. So, uh, but it, it's great to be here this morning and to be able to share God's word together. Um, I, I remember many years ago, I heard the late Selwyn Hughes. He came to speak in one of our, um, our conventions down west. And he, I always remember him telling him that when he was a boy growing up in church, he, 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 saw, he noticed a pattern with the guest speakers. Whenever a guest speaker came, he noticed that if they began, came up to the front and began by saying, oh, if you've got your Bibles, turn with... He noticed that nine times out of ten, they were boring and uninteresting. But if the guest speaker came up and told a funny story to begin with, then guaranteed that that guy would be good and worth listening to. I've always remembered that. So if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, <laughs> could you please turn to Hebrews chapter 2? I'm carrying on these verses at part of the series that you've, um, you've started. So I'm going to read from verse, um, verse 5 through to verse 18. It's not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come, but which we are speaking. But there's a place where someone has testified, What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, you are I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of the death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We thank God for his word this morning that we can turn to and, uh, and look from and learn from this morning. Let me just give you a, a quick reminder then of the, um, what's going on before. If you're, if you're new, as Matthew said, if you're, maybe it's the first time you've been here, let me just uh, catch up the, the context of, of this um, letter to the Hebrews. The writer, because no one really knows who he was or the identity of the writer, the writer is writing to primarily first century Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, with a view 
to encourage them in their faith, to keep the faith, and to hold on to, to what they've heard as they live their lives against persecution and opposition and against the, the backdrop of their Jewish heritage. And the main thrust of the letter is to emphasize that above all else, Jesus is better. Better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the old covenant, just better. Jesus is better. In chapter 1, the writer shows that uh, Jesus is shown to be superior to the angels. And as he is indeed recognized and acknowledged to be God, then chapter 2 opens with a warning to these believers to not drift away from the, the message that they believed or to neglect this great salvation. And it's with this great salvation in mind that I want to look at these verses that I read to you this morning. Through the rest of this chapter, the, the writer puts the emphasis upon Jesus. In chapter 1, Jesus is portrayed uh, as the, Jesus, the writer portrays the deity of Jesus. It says in verse 1, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his person. In chapter 2, the writer focuses on the humanity of Jesus, which is important, I think, because mankind had a problem. You, you heard, I, I looked at the website, I looked on your, um, your YouTube channel, so you heard a couple of weeks ago from Alan how that the Jewish culture, which many of these believers would have um, been brought up in, to them the angels were very important. They were very highly regarded and revered. Indeed, some Jewish groups, like the, including the Essenes from, from which we got the, the Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls in, in Qumran, that's Qumran, not Qumran. They went up in Qumran. This sect believed that angels would, would be the ones to rule the world at the end times. But the writer, whilst I'm sure he was not anti-angels, wanted to make sure that his readers were very clear that that would not be the case, but that man had an important part to play in the plans and purposes of God. As he did in the first chapter, the writer again uses quotes from the Old Testament to, to support his, uh, his letter to them. And so in verse 5 to verse 8, it says this, It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, but which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. That someone that the writer refers to there is, is King David. And the place that he's referring to is Psalms, Psalm 8. What is man? In that original Psalm, Psalm 8, the question arises in relation to the world and to the universe around us. Perhaps it might have been when David was out in the fields one day as a young shepherd, or maybe when he was on the run from King Saul who was trying to arrest him, whatever it might have been, one night David looked up into the heavens above him. And as he saw that vast starscape around him, he asks himself that eternal question, if you like, 
He says, when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Have you ever been there? Ever had that experience of looking up into a dark, cloudless sky and seeing all the, the vastness and thought to yourself, wow. Just a casual look up into the scars makes me gobsmacked to think of how many they are and uh, the, the wonder of it. And, and what David may have considered when he looked up into the stars would pale into insignificance today if he could understand what we know when we look at the stars and the heavens around us. David would have looked at the stars, but he would have had no concept of the distance that those heavenly bodies are away from us. Distance is so great today that we don't talk in miles or kilometers. We have to talk in light years. In the vastness of the universe, whether it's David or you and me looking up into the stars above us, that question is mind-blowing. God, what is man that you are mindful of him? The answer is no less stunning. What does God think about you and me? What does God think about mankind? He thinks an awful lot of us. David knew that. And the writer to the Hebrews reiterates it. He says, you made man a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him as custodian over your creation. Everything under his control. I want to say this morning that God thinks an awful lot about you and about me. Now granted, angels are cool, aren't they? You know? And they're a far superior being to you and to me. But there's no record in Scripture of God's blueprint for the angels. But there is for us. In Genesis chapter 1, 26, we have this record. God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the, all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And he goes on to say at the end of that chapter, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God created man. God created you and me in his own image. He crowned man with glory and honor, put everything in subjection to him. But then verse 8. Verse 8 says that uh, the writer, in, in verse 8, the writer says that God left out nothing. Everything was put under man's control. Everything that man needed, God gave him. But there's a, there's a dilemma in this verse, isn't it, in verse 8? Initially, the writer says nothing was left out. Everything was under man's uh, rule. But then, he states that at this present time, he says, we don't see everything under man's rule. Something had happened. Something had, had changed. These Jewish believers that the writer was writing to would have um, been very much uh, fully conversant with the, the creation story found in the opening chapters of Genesis. God created mankind in his image. Everything was rosy in the garden. Man and God in that perfect relationship. But then Satan comes along. 
Did God say that you, you shouldn't eat of that tree? You know why he said that, don't you? Because he knows that if you do, you'll become like him. Did, did he say that you'd die if you ate that fruit? No, you won't die. And despite having everything that man needed, they wanted more. And through their disobedience, through their going away against God's command, mankind forfeited their exalted position. The supervisor became the subordinate, and mankind became subject to sin and to death. The Apostle Paul speaks about that situation in, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, so also death was passed onto all men because all sinned. That remained mankind's position. Not all things were subject to him anymore because, because of sin. And there seemed to be no way out. Yes, there was, there was provision made through the, through the sacrificial system to atone for sins on a yearly, yearly basis. And there was the promise of the coming Messiah. But mankind was stuck in a rut. There was no way out. But verse 9 begins with these words. But we see Jesus. Into a hopeless situation, Jesus came. Jesus came with a purpose. The darling of heaven, the one who spoke and worlds came into being, the one who received the worship of angels, laid aside his majesty. As Paul described it to the church in Philippi, he says, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. We see Jesus. In a, in a few weeks' time, we'll be celebrating Christmas. I know because I've seen the stuff in the shops already. And although we might bemoan the fact that Christmas has become overly commercialized, and for many the true meaning of Christmas will never enter their heads, yet for us who believe... We recognize that that baby born in a manger in Bethlehem is God incarnate. In that baby, Paul says, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. The incarnation means that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became human and stepped into the world we know, and they called his name Jesus. Paul, the apostle, again, describes this event as a, 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 mis a gr great is the mystery of godliness, he says. God manifest in the flesh. The union of God and man in one person is indeed a mystery. We know full well that Jesus was human. He ate, he drank, he, he got tired, he got weary. He experienced happiness and sadness just, just like we do. But we also see from Scripture his divine nature through the miracles he performed, the wisdom and the authority that he taught with. 
his authority over evil spirits, and the, the numerous Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in his life. This union of human and divine in one person caused much debate in the early church for many years until that first church council in, a, in the city of Nicaea in, in 325 AD. A creed was established that, amongst other things, declared that Jesus was fully God and fully human, two natures in one person. And that creed has been the bedrock of Orthodox Christianity for 2,000 years. And it's vital for us to understand the importance that Jesus was fully God and fully man. I'm going to read you two definitions that came from um, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. I googled this. I don't think I knew it offhand. Two definitions. It's important that Jesus is fully human because the justice of God requires that the same human nature that sinned should pay for the sin. This could only be achieved by a perfect, sinless man. It's important that Jesus is fully God so that, we could, so that he could fully bear and satisfy the wrath of God and secure for us eternal life and favor with God. In other words, Jesus had to be truly human in order to suffer and to sympathize. And Jesus had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure. We see Jesus, the writer says, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, in his suffering and death on the cross, became the ultimate sacrifice. And by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone, for you and for me. And as a result of that sacrifice, he made the way possible for all who believe in and trust on him to experience the grace of God. What did his sacrifice on Calvary achieve? Through his death, Jesus is reversing the situation that Adam got us into. Again, in, John, in Romans 5, Paul says, If by the trespass of one man death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive an abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We see Jesus today, don't we? We see Jesus as God Jesus is our saviour. As man, Jesus is our brother. Through Jesus, God made the way possible for mankind to be restored to the relationship that Adam had and Adam knew in that garden. Through Jesus, God has, com has connected with his people. For what purpose? Verse 10 says, to bring many sons to glory. Let me read verse 10. I'm using the, the, the New King James for this one. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
It was fitting for Jesus to suffer to bring many sons and daughters, of course, to glory. It was fitting or appropriate or necessary for Jesus to die. Really? Couldn't it have been some, some other way? Remember what that catechism said? The justice of God requires the same human nature that sinned should pay for the sin. It was fitting for Jesus to die, for Jesus to suffer, so that he could identify with mankind because we are subject to suffering. It was fitting that Jesus should suffer in as much that it showed the love of God for mankind. That God so loved the world that he was willing to go through the suffering of the cross to redeem and to restore sinful humanity. It was fitting that Jesus suffered as it perfected his role as captain and author of our salvation. And that word, that use of the word perfect there doesn't mean that there was any shortcoming or lack in Jesus that needed to be corrected. It's an expression of completion. Through suffering, Jesus' whole experience of humanity was complete, was perfect. We all know what it is to suffer, don't we? Some people suffer more than others. But no one is immune from the heartache and the harshness of suffering. But we have a God today who, because he was willing to make himself a man, knows and understands what we go through and is able to help us in our times of need. It was fitting so that through his sufferings he could bring many sons to glory. God, through Jesus, connects with us and brings us into his family. Verse 11, it says, For both the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus connects with us, and he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm sure many of us know the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, yeah? And you know, we sing that, don't we, with gusto? What a friend we have in Jesus. We sing it with, a, with a rejoicing it. We throw our shoulders back and puff our chests out to, to know that we can call Jesus our friend, our brother. But look here what it says. It says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's a, that's a bit more sobering, I think, isn't it? Do our lives always live up to the mark? Is there anything in our life that we wouldn't want our friends to know about? But Jesus knows all about them. And is still not ashamed to put his arm around us and call us brothers and, and sisters. He brings us into his family. He stands with us. In verses 12 and 13, the, the writer again quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 22 and, and Isaiah 18. And those, those passages of Scripture, the, the Jewish believers would have recognized them as, as messianic references. When the Messiah identifies with his people, and Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, stands with his people, 
stand with us today as our ultimate friend and our ultimate helper. Verse 14 and 15 says, Since the children are flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus shared our humanity for a reason, so that by his death he might destroy the death grip that the devil had over mankind. You see, Jesus' death was no ordinary death. We die because of sin. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And that verse I quoted from Romans 5, death was passed on to all men because all sin. But Jesus was fully God and fully man. He had no sin. Death had no hold over him. The grim reaper posed no threat to Jesus. Scripture says that it's appointed unto man once to die, but Jesus had no appointment in his diary. Jesus was the master of his own destiny, fully under control. And when everything in salvation's plan had been accomplished, Jesus breathed his last, surrendered his spirit, and went to do business with the one who up until that time held the power of death. Then three days later, the one who had the power to lay down his life exercised that power and took it up again and rose triumphant from the grave. The hymn says, Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Saviour. He's torn the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Through his death and his resurrection, Jesus has, for all those who acknowledge and call him Lord, abolished the slavery of deathly fear and set his people free. That's good news, isn't it? That he's done that. He's made that way possible for you and me to know that freedom from the fear of death. Now, don't get me wrong. There's an apprehension in dying. I don't want to... I'm not looking forward to dying. You know, I, I hope, Lord, if I can do a request, let it be in my sleep. I'm not, not so keen on, on the prospect of dying, but to us who believe this morning, death has no dominion over us. I hope our testimony as believers is the same as Paul. For me to live is Christ, but to die, <laughs> that's a gain. That's a bonus. Just to, to, to remind us about angels, because we haven't spoken about the angels for a while, have we? Verse 16, he says, For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Jesus, Jesus hasn't done all this to help the angels, but to Abraham's descendants. The writer, as I said, is addressing Jewish believers, the natural descendants of Abraham. But this help that he's speaking of is not confined to, to Jews alone, but to the people of faith. Abraham was a man of faith. And so he's speaking to the children of faith, those who have come to faith, just like Abraham had faith in God. Not for the angels. Jesus didn't do that. He did it for you. He did it for me. 
that we might experience this joy of knowing our sins forgiven and freedom in him. i got to go. Verse 17 says, For this reason he has been made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. You're studying this book of Hebrews, this letter of Hebrews, and further on in the chapter, there's an awful lot more about the high priest and atonement. So I'm going to skip that, right? And I'll leave it for people who are coming after me to explain it a bit more fully. But these, these believers would have known exactly what the writer was on about when he spoke about the high priest, his role before God as an intercessor, and the atonement that he went in once a year to make for them. But I'm sure that as you follow the series, it'll come more clearer, the wonderful role of Jesus as our, our high priest. So I'll get on to that last verse. It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Up until now, all the reference has been Jesus suffered because of the agony of the cross. It was in relation, his suffering was in relation to the sacrifice he made on the cross. But here the writer says that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. Temptation is defined as the desire to do something especially wrong or unwise. Anybody here been tempted? I'm not going to ask you, any, put your hands up, any of us, you have ever given in to temptation? You know, what's the easiest way to give in, what's the easiest way to, to relieve the pressure of to temptation? It's to give in, isn't it? To just give in to it. When we often ju- justify our submission, well, I won't do it again. It was, it was only this once. You know, Jesus never had that release clause, if you like. If he had given in to temptation, even to the smallest of temptations, just once, then it would have been all over. His death would have been a waste of time. But Jesus was tempted, but never gave in. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? The pressure that must have come through all those temptations that we might quite simply say, well, I'll just, I'll do it once, I won't do it again. Jesus faced all the temptations. It goes on further in chapter 4 to Jesus that says Jesus was tempted in every way just like we are. And yet without sin. But those temptations that he went through put a, put a pressure on him. But he came through them. And this verse says that because he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he went through the suffering of temptation, he knows what it is like for us. And as it says in that last line, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is the ultimate helper. He's the one who's there for us. And God in Jesus became man so that he could identify and connect with us, his creation, you and me. Jesus became man so that he came, he came to defeat sin and death. And that has no more power over us who believe this morning. Jesus came as a man to show God's love for us. Jesus came, took upon himself the form of a man to offer us salvation. 
this joy of having that restored relationship that Adam lost for us in the garden. Jesus came to make it possible for us to know that relationship with God again. And for us who know and have experienced all this, then he has promised to never leave us and to be there for us every minute of every day. We see Jesus. We see Jesus taking upon himself the form of a man, humbling himself, going to Calvary for us that he might win the, the victory and restore that relationship between us and God. As believers this morning, we know who he is. We rejoice in the wonderful truth of what these scriptures tell us this morning. But you might be here this morning and you've got no idea who Jesus is. I want to tell you that Jesus came to this earth for you so that you can know the joy of sins forgiven and this relationship with God, being part of the family of God that he has brought us into. And my prayer is this morning that every one of us might know him for who he is and that we eyes looking up to heaven, we can say, we see Jesus. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we do say this morning that you being manifest in the flesh is indeed to many a great mystery. But we thank you for your word that tells us you came took upon yourself that form of a man. You became like us so that you might defeat him who had that power of death over us. We thank you this morning that through your death, through your understanding of who you are, you bring us into your family. And Lord, this morning, we rejoice that you're our helper, you're our friend, you're our saviour. I pray, Lord, this morning, every one of us here might have that assurance and that confidence that we see Jesus for who you truly are. Lord, just bless your word and just help us to understand it. As we go from this place today, help us to ponder over it, that we might rejoice in you and give you thanks for your glory and your honour. Amen.